As you know, we were uh, part of a flourishing church network that needed 300 people to do a survey from our church, and last week we did it. So please, give yourselves a hand. Thank you. Thank you for responding, and we'll uh, have an updated report, and it will all be good. If you're visiting with us, welcome. I want to welcome those who are listening online. Thank you for joining in on our uh, social media. Uh, we are in a series called Perspective, which is uh, looking at the life of David and some of the choices that he made, and we are finding out that our perspective does influence our decisions, and our decisions point the, our life in a trajectory, in a, in a frame, so it's important what our perspectives are. Just a reminder, you can catch up with the sermons that you've missed by going to cdac.ca slash messages and catch up. Their notes this morning are in your program. They're on the screen. You can also access them on the Uversion Bible app. Click more, click events, circle drive will come up. You can follow along there. Well, David is uh, quite a character, and we see that his life really tries to and does reflect honor towards God. But David is human, and we've noticed a couple of uh, situations that David was in. His perspective uh, was kind of skewed at the time, and he made some choices that were not all that positive. But to David's credit, he always comes back to the core of his nature, which is trust and honor of God. No wonder God called David a man after his own heart. Today we look at uh, an aspect of David's life that helps us focus on something that I think is true. I think it is true that a measure of a person's maturity is how we handle power. How we handle authority and influence. How do we respond when we realize that we are the most important and most powerful person in the room? It could be in the boardroom, the classroom, the locker room, the workroom, whatever room. You look around and you realize you have influence and it dawns on you that all eyes are on you because you're in charge. And you make the decisions. What do you do in those moments? It is disturbing when you see somebody with power or authority leveraging that for their own benefit to neglect the people who have chosen to follow the leader. Nothing is more inspiring, though, when you see someone who says no to themselves so they can leverage their power for the benefit of other people. And my theory is that none of us really know which lever we would pull until somebody actually hands us the keys and gives us the position. We don't know which way we will go until we actually have authority. Or in David's case, until he got the crown and became the king. 
David was a boy in middle school when Samuel the prophet showed up at his home. Samuel had great authority along with King Saul. Samuel said to David's father, Jesse, I'm here on a mission. And we discovered that this was a secret mission that he was on. Samuel was to anoint the next king. It was a secret because King, uh, king Saul was still the king. So if you're going to anoint the next king, you keep it a secret from the current king, especially when Saul was such a weenie man and had such a low self-esteem and was suspicious of every other person. So Samuel really doesn't tell Jesse why he's there. He states that he is there to sacrifice to the Lord. And his whole family is invited. And Samuel thought to himself, as soon as I see the son of Jesse, that will be the next king. I will get the nod from God, and most likely, it will be the oldest son. So the oldest son comes into the room, and you find this in 1 Samuel 16, verse 6. When Samuel saw Eliab and thought, surely the Lord's anointed stands here before the Lord. Verse 7 says, but the Lord said to Samuel, do not consider his appearance or his height. Now, when you meet someone for the very first time, what is it that you notice? It's probably not their IQ or their manners, but you probably notice their looks to begin with. And all of us, is, it's the same, and it was true in ancient times. We ascribe value and influence to people who look good. But God said, I have rejected him. The Lord does not look at the things people look at. People look at the outward appearance, but it says that God looks toward the heart, the heart of the person. In other words, it's what is in the man that makes a man. So ladies, don't be fooled by the outward appearance. Men, it is what is in the woman that makes the woman. So men, don't forget it, men. The story goes on. And Jesse passes six sons by Samuel. And still, there's no king. He gets no nod from God. And finally, this was an awkward moment. And so Jesse says, are these all the sons you have? It's kind of a silly question to ask when the whole family was invited to this event. And the response is, they're still the youngest, Jesse answered. He's tending the sheep. And Samuel said, Send for him. We will not sit down until he arrives. So he sent for him and had him brought in, and he was glowing with health and had a fine appearance and handsome features. So here David is probably 13 or 14 years old. And immediately the Lord said, Rise and anoint him. This is the one. So Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the presence of his brothers. 
And from that day on, the Spirit of the Lord came powerfully upon David. And then Samuel went to Ramah. There is no indication that anyone in the room knew that David was being anointed for kingship. David always knew that there was something special for him since that day that he was anointed by Samuel. Eighteen months to two years later, when David is 15 years old, he stands before Goliath and he kills him. And overnight he becomes this great sensation. And for seven years, he's in the good graces of King Saul. In fact, David marries one of Saul's daughters and is the best friend to Saul's son, Jonathan, who everyone thought would become the next king after Saul. For seven years, things are great. And then the music changes. As Saul becomes threatened by David's popularity, and in his jealousy of David, he places a bounty on David's head, and David becomes a fugitive for eight years. David's on the run for eight years, hiding with his band of men, trying not to side with the Philistines, but also attempting to stay away from King Saul. And during this time, David knows that God has chosen him for something special. You can read the whole story. It's found in, in 1 Samuel. Now, as David runs, he learns an important lesson. And this is what I want us to see this morning. David learned that it was not about me. It was God's will, God's way, in God's time. God's will, God's way, God's time. He lived this. He breathed this. On two occasions, David had opportunity to, king, to kill King Saul. The most famous is when David is hiding in a cave and King Saul's men are passing by the cave. And David is waiting for Saul's entourage to pass by and then David and his men would sneak out and go the opposite way to escape King Saul's army. Now, right in front of the cave that David is hiding in, Saul um, had to go to the bathroom. He had, a, he had a moment. He stops. He gets off his donkey. He goes into the cave. And David is in the cave with all of his men and their eyes have adjusted to the dark, while Saul's eyes have not. Saul is out of reach of his men, and he's doing his business. Now, when Saul is in the most vulnerable position, David's men turn to David, and they whisper and say, God has just delivered your enemy into your hand. David crept up to towards Saul, and he cuts a piece of his robe off, but he would not kill Saul. He knew that God had something special for him, but refused to take matters into his own hands. He learned the lesson once. He took matters into his own hands. He made decisions based on that, and it cost the lives of so many people. So this time, 
he does not take matters into his own hands. When Saul left, David appeared at the mouth of the cave and, and called out to Saul. And he says in 24, verse 11, See, my father, look at this piece of your robe in my hand. I cut off the corner of your robe, but I did not kill you. See that there is nothing in my hand to indicate that I'm guilty of wrongdoing or rebellion. I have not wronged you, but you are hunting me down to take my life. May the Lord judge between you and me, and may the Lord avenge the wrongs you have done to me, but my, my hand will not touch you. As the old saying goes, from evildoers come evil do deeds, so my hand will not touch you. He did not have to say it, but everybody knew the men around David wanted to kill King Saul. Now there's another story that happened a few months later when Saul and his army were in the desert of Ziph. It's a wide, open plain with rolling hills and virtually no trees. And David sent spies to track Saul's progress so they could stay out of reach of the Saul. So they watched Saul's camp. Saul pitches his tent in the middle of 3,000 men army. He's well protected. And as he goes to bed, he, he puts his spear down in the ground next to his head because that's how they slept. And the sun goes down and the, si the camp is asleep. David turns to his friend Abijah and says, I have a bad idea. Hey, are you with me? Are you ready to come with me? And Abisha was in, like he liked adventure. So David and Abisha went down to Saul's sleeping uh, tent with the army all around Saul. They're all sleeping. He, he snuck up to, to King Saul. Abner, the chief bodyguard, was around him sleeping too. And they are right there. And again, Abisha whispers to, to David and says, David, God has delivered your enemies into your hands. We, we missed the opportunity once. Now is the time. Let's take what is yours. God wills it. Because how else can we explain our presence in the middle of this army? Everybody's asleep. David, do it. It's, it's got to be God's time. Abijah knew David's convictions, so offered to do it himself. Like, I'll do it for you, David. I'll finish him in. And the army will wake up and declare you the king. Done! Let's do it, David. David says in 1 Samuel 26, 9, Don't destroy him. Who can lay a hand on the Lord's anointed and be guiltless? As surely as the Lord lives, he said, the Lord himself will strike him or his time will come and he will die or he will go to battle and perish. But the Lord forbid that I should lay a hand on the Lord's anointed. Now get the spear and water jug that are near his head and let's go. So they took the spear, the water jug, they went 
back through the valley up the side of the hill and they wait for the sunrise. In the morning, David stands on the edge of the hill and he says, Yahoo! Abner! He calls for Abner. Are you missing anything? And everybody recognizes that it's the voice of David and David is holding Saul's spear at his water jug. And Abner looks around and he sees that Saul's spear is missing and his water jug is missing. And David says, what the opposition party always says to the governing party, Abner, you're a poor excuse for a bodyguard. You should resign. Resign. You're a lousy bodyguard. And then David disappears behind the hill and out through the desert. And here's what we see. David refused to replace what God had put in place. He refused to replace what God put in place. For he knew it was God's will, God's way, and God's time. That was his values, his perspective. Now eventually, King Saul and his son Jonathan are at battle against the Philistines, and they're killed. Two men who stood in David's way of becoming king. And David actually mourned their deaths. Israel, as you know, had 12 tribes. And Judah is one of the tribes which David became king of that tribe. The other 11 was reigned by Ish-bosheth, one of Saul's other sons who declared himself as the king of the other 11 tribes. So David is king over one tribe, and for seven more years, there's conflict between David and the house of Saul, ruled by Ish-bosheth. Now, during these seven years, people were telling David to take what is yours over and over again. They said, David, just, you know, kill him and... Be the king of the whole thing. And David would say, no. God's will, God's way, and God's time. And David lived by this value that he would not touch what God anointed. And he just stayed out of the way. Seven years go on and finally two brothers that were in David's household had enough. They sneak into Ish-bosheth's house while he's napping and they kill him. Finally, the last obstacle to David's rule is gone. They cut the head of Ishi off and they take it. And in verse 8 says, they brought the head of Ishbosheth to David at Hebron and said to the king, here's the head of Ishbosheth, son of Saul, your enemy, who tried to kill you. Now, most of us think this is cruel. But in that day, they didn't have iPhones, and they couldn't take a picture of his face, so they cut off the head for identification. It was proof that they had the right guy. Then the verse says, This day the Lord has avenged my Lord and the king against Saul and his offspring. And they bring his head in a bag, and they're so excited. 
They're high-fiving each other the whole way home to see David at his house. And verse 9, David answered Rechab and his brother Bana, the sons of Rimmon, the Berethite, as surely as the Lord lives, who has delivered me out of every trouble, he's basically saying, the Lord didn't need your help, guys. He's quite adequate. And I didn't ask for your help. You took matters into your own hands. So David continues and he said, when someone told me Saul is dead and thought he was bringing good news, I seized him and put him to death at Ziglag. That was the reward I gave them for the news. And suddenly these two guys, are the, the color goes out of their face. They realize they're not bringing David good news. He's not so happy. Verse 11, he says, How much more when wicked men have killed an innocent man in his own house and put, it, put on his own bed? Should I now, not now, demand his blood from your hand and rid you of the earth? So David gave an order to his men, and they killed them and cut off their hands and feet and hung the bodies by the pool of Hebron. But they took the head of Ish-bosheth and buried it in Abner's tomb at Hebron. And to bury the head was a sign of respect. And David was respecting the former king of the 11 tribes. And quickly... Everybody understood now that David was to be anointed the king over all 12 tribes. And Israel came together, partly in surrender because their king was dead, and partly out of recognition that David was God's choice. And in this moment, David shows extraordinary maturity. He would have not had, when he was, say, 15 or when he was 22, he, handed, he was handed the reins of power, and the most, he was now the most influential person in the room. And the question is, how did David handle it? Well, David did not have to, but when the elders of Israel had come to David at Hebron, he made a covenant with them before the Lord. This is powerful because it's David's recognition in public that he would be a king under the authority of God. He was submitting himself to God's law and to God's people. And he would rule in a way that was for the benefit of all those under his kingship. It was a way of saying I'm the king, but I am not the king. That's reserved for God. What an incredible story of David. It's so inspiring when a leader says no to himself so they can say yes to the people. And here's what I want you to see. If you are a Jesus follower, it is not enough to be inspired by this kind of greatness. It is actually required. It is required of every Jesus follower to be concerned about the people. To not be in it for yourself. 1,000 years later and 20 miles north of Hebron where this 
this event took place in Jerusalem, Jesus would model this kind of greatness for his people. John, one of Jesus' disciples, was an eyewitness of all that took place with Jesus, and he wrote it down for us to see. And here's what, it wrote, what he wrote. The context is that this was the Passover celebration, which was a, a Jewish celebration of God's deliverance of people from slavery out of Egypt. And during the Passover, Jesus would celebrate his, his Passover with the disciples. He gathered them in the upper room. And when they finished the meal, Jesus knew that within a few hours, he would be arrested and it would be the beginning of the end for him. He would be crucified. And like David, he was anointed by God but he was not recognized by the people. And during this meal, Jesus would inaugurate a new covenant, not just between the 12 tribes of Israel, but a new covenant, which is why we call the second half of the Bible the New Testament or the New Covenant. This new covenant would be based upon what he would do on the cross. He would shed his blood, his very life, for all of the wrongdoings of the world. He would bring grace and forgiveness and life by the shedding of his own life and blood. The Old Testament was based on the Old Covenant with its rules and regulations, and there were many. And whenever someone sinned, they would have to bring an animal that would be killed, and that blood of the innocent animal would be poured out over, over the altar, and it was the blood, the visual blood, that assured people that their sins were covered. And that that action was to, to foreshadow what would happen when Jesus or the Messiah would come and he would come with his own life so that that old covenant would be obsolete and that new covenant would be in place. And, and this was a very holy moment when Jesus was with his disciples in that upper room celebrating Passover. And every Jew in every home would celebrate this great tradition, recognizing that they were once slaves in Egypt. And God said to the people, if you kill an animal and, and spread the blood over the doorposts of your home. The death angel will come. And every home that does not have the blood over their doorpost, their firstborn would be killed. They're not only their children, but their animals. But if you put the blood over the doorpost, the death angel would pass over and your firstborn your children and your animals will not be killed. And it happened that night. 
And so every Passover, they remembered what God had done and that the blood had saved them. And when Bev and I were up in Israel at a kibbutz in Galilee, we gathered in this room where families were together and they were celebrating the, the Passover uh, supper. And you were drawn into this ceremony. There was laughter and celebration and wine and dancing. Every Jew would celebrate this great thing. And there was Jesus. This very holy moment. A hinge moment in history. And John recognizes this in hindsight and records it. The end had come and John writes about this holy and special moment. And Jesus recognized he was the most powerful person in the room. He had the authority. And John writes, in John 13, verse 3, Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power and that he had come from God and was returning to God. So what did Jesus do? It says he got up from the meal and took off his outer clothing and wrapped a towel around his waist. And the disciples couldn't believe what he was doing. Peter objected, oh no, don't wash my feet. We, we have servants to do that, Jesus. And Jesus smiled and ignored all of that. And it says, after that, he poured water into the basin and began to wash his disciples' feet, drying them with a the towel that was wrapped around them. And I think Jesus was smiling at this moment because he realized he had just preached the most powerful sermon he ever preached, and he did it without words. He just did something that was so obvious. And then for future generations and our benefit, Jesus says, now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you should also wash one another's feet. He was saying, I'm not too powerful. I'm not too good. I'm not too proud to wash your feet. And he says, I've set an example that you should do as I have done to you. And to every Jesus follower, he would say, Verily, verily, I tell you, no servant is greater than his master, nor his messenger greater than the one who sent him. He's saying, I'm sending you out. I'm sending you out to emulate my example. In verse 17, he says, now that you know these things, you are blessed if you do them. Friends, the greatest reflection of your maturity is when you have power and you have authority and you have influence, it is what we do with that authority and power and influence. When we recognize we're the most powerful person in the classroom, the boardroom, the staff room, any room, we reflect the servant heart of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And we come to bring the best out of people not to do what's best for ourselves, but we deny ourselves for those who are around us. 
And at some level, someone has already handed you the keys and the title, haven't they? We wear the crown. We're the parent, the spouse, the manager, the owner, the captain of the team, the big brother, the big sister, the president, the board member, the scheduler. You already have authority at some level. And we would do well to remember the greatness of David who learned the hard way and that of Jesus who modeled what is required of every Jesus follower. And Jesus said it best, whoever wants to be great among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first must be your slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but he come to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. Imagine us. Just imagine. Imagine if all of us with influence lived this way. Can you imagine what kind of a world we'd have, what kind of a community we have? And if you read history, history tells us that that kind of selflessness changed the world. It changed the world. And it changed it once, and it can change it again when it dawns on us that we have the power and authority and the influence, and therefore it's our responsibility to look for a way to wash the feet of those people we know and leverage our influence the benefit of those people in the room and those who are not yet in this room. That is what your Savior did for you and what your Savior did for me. I fear that the North American church has become so consumer-oriented. It's all about me. Sing my songs. Do my thing. Serve me, give me, help me, counsel me, do for me. And we've lost that ability to serve. And people say to me, the church has lost its influence and look at how bad the world is getting. Listen, the world needs light. And Jesus showed us the way. He showed us the way. He said, if you need to serve, he says, it's not your will, it's God's will. It's not your way, it's God's way. It's not your time, it's God's time. And he would say to each of us, get off our pew, take a towel, take a basin, and serve and wash the feet of your community if you want to grow up wash people's feet selflessness changed the world once it can change it again and if when we see God doing it 
we recognize his greatness is among us. The team wants to sing this song, Great Are You, Lord. Would you reflect on how great God can be as you serve him? Not your will, God's way in his time. Volunteers are coming to distribute the elements, communion elements, and we ask that you would take them and hold on to them until we can all eat and drink together. This table is not the table of this church. It's the table of Christ. So if you have a relationship with Jesus Christ, you are welcome to receive communion. This table reminds us of the great sacrifice that Christ made. Though he was God, yet did he, he did not hold on to his rights as the Godhead, but emptied himself, came to earth and lived among us, and showed us how to live and a sacrifice for the people. And he gave his life his body and his blood so that we could receive forgiveness and grace. Volunteers are coming now to give you these elements. Please reflect on what Christ has done for us in giving his very life so that we can experience life. We will have a moment of reflection. Uh, scripture tells us not to eat and drink unworthily, but to reflect on those things that separate us from God's presence. The things that we do that are offensive to a holy God. And he says, bring those to me Confess them to me so that my blood for it. I want you to give to give you a moment to reflect and to talk to God at this moment. Thank you, Father, that your forgiveness is free and it's effective. Your grace has covered every wrongdoing. And we can confidently approach your table. And we can come before your throne of grace and boldness because of what Jesus Christ has done for us. So we take the elements, the bread and the cup, we do so with grateful hearts, thanking you for your shed blood and your broken body. You did it for us. We praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. On that night, he took the bread and he said to his disciples, this is my body, which is broken for you. And in a like manner, he took the cup and said, this is the new 
covenant, the new agreement in my blood. The old covenant was based on what we did with animal sacrifices. Now, I've done it once for all. Take and eat and drink with thanksgiving. you stand with me? <clears throat> Thank you for being here today to celebrate what Christ has done for us. There's something in this service that you want to talk to somebody about or you require prayer. There will be people available at the front for you. Hope that you come back next week for the final installment of Perspectives. Uh, may God go with you. May the Lord bless you and keep you and make his face to shine upon you and be gracious unto you. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Don't forget your ice cream as you go out the door and celebrate what we have done together in generosity. <laughs>